Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We decided it's high time we do an episode about Mary Jane. Marijuana, things are happening. That's right. This episode is about pot. We're exploring the rhetoric surrounding legalization in New York's recent gubernatorial primaries. And a cheesemonger turned cannabis consultant shares the tricks of the trade. Great. So do you want to conquer the world? Do you want to have hazy eyes? Do you want to, you know, just relax all day and be floaty? And we find out how one exemplary South Carolina farmer is trying his hand at a new crop. Every plant that comes up from seed is different. And so it's it's learning how the plant grows, how it responds, and then familiarizing myself and my senses with this plant. Plus, Hannah Forden and I taste test the hottest new cocktail ingredient, CBD. So subscribe to Meet and 3 wherever you listen to podcasts and be the first to know when the newest episode of Meet and 3 drops. Listening to Earbirds on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. And uh, it's a beautiful fall day here in New York City and Brooklyn, where we're at Roberta's Pizza, as usual. But it has been a really exhausting week in this nation, it feels like, with the, you know, being just swept into this drama around the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Brett Kavanaugh, and all the, all the uh, sort of wounds of, of, sexual abuse, you know, coming to the forefront in our dialogue today. It's just been completely overwhelming. Um, But at the same time, things are still happening. And, uh, you know, in the world, in the country, in the administration, and, um, you know, things that are getting a little bit swept under the rug are some developments that are not too good in the world of food and climate and science. So just the other day, for instance, Um, The administration dissolved the Office of the Science Advisor at the EPA. Uh, There's been a bailout proposed of about $12 billion for farmers who are affected by the trade war with China. So that's just the latest uh, struggle for farmers who are already struggling to kind of keep up with the Joneses. Um, but amidst this, you know, vast, you know, deregulation happening and, you know, the, the... I guess, de-emphasizing of science overall for climate um, research and so forth. I'm really grateful that there are many independent organizations and think tanks out there that are doing some great work. So uh, institutions like the Brilla Center for Food and Nutrition uh, sorry, the Brilla Center for Food and Nutrition Foundation, which is a private nonprofit think tank, which analyzes the effect of economic, scientific, social, and environmental factors on food. And also really great nonprofits such as the Food Tank, a nonprofit organization focused on building a global community for safe, healthy, nourished eaters. That organization is uh, led by its co-founder and president, Danielle Nirenberg. And I'm so happy to be joined by Danielle right now on phone. Hi, Danielle. 
Hey, I'm so happy to be here. It's been a crazy week, as you said. So I'm, I'm happy to talk to someone like you who, who gets it. Well, you know, I'm just so glad that you're still doing such amazing work. And hey, let's talk about exciting things happening at Food Tank. That sounds like refreshing. Um, you guys, first of all, you're edit, you've edited this book called Nourish Planet Sustainability in the Global Food System, which I'm so excited to talk about. And then you have a new podcast yourself, right? Yes, and we also have an event this week in New York, so maybe I'll get to see you in person. But yes, a lot's going on. Um, Nourish Planet came out earlier this year, and it's um, uh, we were really proud to produce it with the Barilla Center for Food and Nutrition Foundation, who you mentioned before. And it's, it's we really try to highlight what's working on the ground, mm-hmm. like like all food tank things. And um, we were really proud of some of the stories we were able to tell. Yeah. It's a great collection. Um, what are, what else is going on at Food Tank? Any like new initiatives? Um, and do tell us about that event this week in New York. Yeah, so we have our second annual Food Loss and Food Waste Summit in okay. collaboration with uh, the Fink Family Foundation and the Rockefeller Foundation on Wednesday of this week um, at NYU's uh, uh, School of Law, their Steingart Center. So it should be a really interesting day of discussions and profiles of entrepreneurs and farmers and others who are really uh, fighting against food loss and food waste. And just to give you a tease, I'm really excited uh, uh, in particular about the fireside chats that I get to moderate. One with Dan Barber, one with Dan Barber, one with Questlove and Haley Thomas. Haley Thomas is a young chef. We all know who Questlove is. Yeah. And then one one with Marion Nestle. And so I'm just really excited that I get to sit on stage with people I really admire and, and value their opinion and get to chat with them a little about their work, not just on food loss and food waste, but the whole food system. Right. Well, I think that it's a, it's a great idea to talk about food waste right now, especially in New York City, uh, where we see a lot of food waste. Um, so it sounds like a really great topic. And also just the speakers um, are just such vast experts in, in many things around food. But... Speaking of experts, a big part of um, Nourish Planet, this book, has to do with, uh, well, includes uh, interviews with experts and advocates. Like um, on the topic of waste, there's an interview with Tristan Stewart, the author of Waste, for example. Um, there's an interview with Natasha Bowens, the author of The Color of Food. So as the editor of this book, I'm curious how you chose these leaders to include. Yeah. No, it's a great question. So those those vignettes that are between chapters are called new voices. Um, and they're really it was an opportunity to highlight some of the most well known people who are working on these issues, like Tristram Stewart on food waste, as you mentioned, but also some voices that are rarely heard from. Um, one of my favorites is from Sig Snap, who is a uh, soil guru at uh, Michigan State University, and she's been working with farmers uh, all over the world, but in particular in um, uh, sub-Saharan Africa, especially places like Malawi. And she talks about the need for a rainbow revolution, which, mm-hmm. you know, means really diverting away from our focus on commodity crops like maize, which is predominant in places like Malawi, but really, you know, focusing more attention and ultimately more research and investment on, on the things that actually make crops like maize taste good, which are fruits and vegetables and really nutritious and nutrient-dense things that don't get 
a lot of attention from governments or corporations. So, uh, you know, it was really exciting to be able, like I said, to include some, you know, uh, new voices along with some older ones like Vandana Shiva, who's, you know, been doing a lot of this work around food uh, activism for much of her career as a scientist. Um, we also included Hans Heron, who um, runs the Millennium Institute and is a, you know, a world-renowned scientist uh, who has won the World Food Prize, but is also an activist uh, who, who really disparages the growth of, of sort of corporate control over the food system. So it was just really great to include a lot of different uh, viewpoints. Yeah. I mean, and I was so excited to learn p- about people I, I don't know about, and um, I'm sure many people will be able to to. F- be enlightened by the variety of um, interviews you have here. Uh, for example, I didn't know about Shanika Leister and Anne Teresa Birthright. Oh my God, I, I love those women. <laughs> so they're they're Jamaican, and mm-hmm. they're you know they're agronomists and scientists who are working directly with farmers to help uh, create resiliency to climate change. And they won this award a few years ago from the Barilla Center for Food and Nutrition Foundation that is called BCFN Yes, and the Yes stands for Young Earth Solutions. And these these women are incredible. Like, you know, they're really at the, the beginning of their careers, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, they're paving the way for how all scientists and researchers should really be interacting with farmers. They're including them at the very beginning of the research and development pro- uh, process. They're asking farmers what they need rather than telling them what they, they should want. And mm-hmm. it's just a really exciting, you know, paradigm shift in how we do development across the world. And, and they're young women, which is so exciting. And they're really, you know, dynamic and amazing. And I, I've been so proud to know them and really admire them and, and learn more about what they're trying to do. Wow, that is so exciting. Yeah, it sounds like they won a one-year research grant. And um, and this is, uh, you know, on a very local level that they're they're working on solutions in, in Jamaica. Um, and I Absolutely. love how... Yeah, I love how together, you know, with very localized kind of um, examples, case studies and so forth, there's um, there's this all together in this book that is there's this sort of like overall portrait of of how many solutions can come together. So what I mean, for instance, what I found so interesting is that you begin the book um, talking about the work of a group called Zaz. Zasaka in Zambia? Zasaka, yeah. Zasaka. Yeah, actually, they changed their name kind of thankfully <laughs> since the book was published. Okay. And now they're called, they're, now they're called Good Nature Agro. Okay. Um, which maybe also isn't the best name, but like more importantly than that, they're doing really amazing work. And yeah. again, this is a very bottom-up approach. They're working directly with farmers on things like post-harvest losses. One of the cool things that they do is they they find appropriate technologies to help farmers. They're using very simple tools like corn grinders right. along with, you know, combining high and low technologies, you know, helping farmers use uh, SMS and cell phone technology better. I just love that they're able to do things very grassroots, mm-hmm. but also place it in a global context and, and show how these things can be replicated and scaled out right. in different ways. I think, I think that, we have this. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, please. I, I think we have this weird definition of scale when we're talking about things like technologies and what Good Nature Agro is doing is not necessarily trying to scale up what farmers are doing, but scale out and replicate these different technologies and have farmers adapt them in ways that are most conducive to their own work and their own communities and their own context. So I think it's just a really interesting way to 
to both work with farmers and think about what, again, what development in these communities really looks like. Right. And I love that it sounds like they're also trying to encourage young people to get into farming to help uh, basically maintain these more um, viable solutions that have been implemented and keep it, you know, keep the, keep it going for the long run. Um, and um, what what is really interesting is that, you know, after describing that, you write, um, I'm going to quote from, from the book, um, you write, ironically, their recommendations are not that different from those that could be reasonably offered to farmers in North America. Despite all the difference between the developed and developing worlds, there is a growing realization that the global North's way of feeding people, relying heavily on the mechanized, chemical-intensive mass production of food, isn't working, and that policymakers and donors might be wise to start following the lead of farmers in the global South, rather than insisting that they follow ours. So just this one kind of snippet of an example that is going on in Zambia, um, there's many things that we can learn from that, it sounds like. Absolutely. And I've been so, you know, when, when I first started traveling, you know, when I was in my 20s and looking at different projects across the world, there was this, you know, sort of insistence that, you know, the United States and the Western world really knew how, knew how to do things best. I was a Peace Corps volunteer, you know. Peace Corps volunteers are sent out into the world to sort of teach, you know, in mm, quotes, uh, other people. <laughs> and what I've learned since then is that I learned more as a Peace Corps volunteer and as a traveler and as a researcher and a writer than I ever really was able to teach anyone in, in developing countries. And I think, you know, now as we're seeing the effects of climate change become more evident, you know, the droughts that have plagued the American Midwest, right. and California. I think we're beginning to realize that we probably have a lot to learn from farmers in the global south who have been dealing with these sorts of, of, of things for a really long time. And, you know, not that we're going to convert conventional agriculture overnight, but I do think that farmers in, 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 in North America can really learn what, from what farmers have been facing in other parts of the world. And, and so I, being able to, to, you know, tell those stories and, and understand that, you know, farmers don't need to be competing against each other. American farmers don't need to be competing against farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. We need sort of, you know, more information exchange that is that is happening both ways. Absolutely. And ironically is an apt term then in many ways that you've used here. Um, let's, I want to talk more about Global South versus Global North a little bit, but um, we're going to cut to a quick little commercial break and we'll be right back chatting more with Danielle Nirenberg. Today's program was brought to you by Roth Cheese, a pioneer in the U.S. specialty cheese movement. Roth is in its 25th year of making specialty cheese in the rolling hills of southern Wisconsin. With strong Swiss heritage, Roth is best known for its award-winning alpine-style cheeses under the name Grand Cru. Fresh Wisconsin milk, combined with expertise in affinage, is how Roth creates high-quality, great-tasting cheese year after year. In 2016, hard work paid off when out of over 2,000 contenders, Roth Grand Cru Surchois was named World Champion at the World Cheese Championship. For more information, visit RothCheese.com. All right, we're back chatting more with Danielle Nierenberg. She's the founder and president of Food Tank and also the editor of Nourished Planet, a book, and the subtitle is Sustainability in the Global Food System. So, Danielle, we were just, you know, the term, we were just talking about this, but um, the terms global south 
and global north get thrown around when it comes to farming, um, agriculture. What, what exactly, why is there this line drawn between the two? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I have trouble with sort of dealing with the semantics because yeah. I feel like developing countries versus industrialized countries is pejorative. I feel like global south versus global north sort of gets away from that. Okay. But I, I think there's a line drawn because we're talking about sort of uh, traditional and, and indigenous knowledge versus, you know, conventional or industrial agriculture. Got it. And I think that's kind of where the line is drawn for me. Um, and, and it's an unfortunate one, right? Because I think that those things can be combined in really effective ways. Right. I don't, you know, I think, you know, as I said before, farmers in, in the global north, American farmers can learn a lot from farmers in the global south. Certainly the reverse is true or the, the other way is true. But I think there's a way to combine high and low technologies that, that don't, you know, uh, uh, you know, look down on indigenous knowledge and that don't, you know, look down on technology overall. I think some technologies can be really effective and, and help a lot of uh, farmers and, and improve nutrition. But a lot of us, especially, you know, I come from the sustainable agriculture side of the equation. We, we tend to think, oh, God, no technology. Like, we don't want that. That, you know, that means things that, you know, corporations are putting, uh, 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 you know, out for us. We want to do our things our own way. But I, I think there is sort of a happy medium that we can eventually reach where we can look at technology as something that's beneficial when it's used in the right way, when it's appropriate, when it's, you know, used in a, in a way that involves communities from the very beginning, et cetera. Right. All right. Well, thanks for bringing that down, breaking that down. Um, and so, you know, this book is all about those solutions that we can find in the case studies, examples and so forth. And, um, you, you know, you write that it's there's a lot of viable, um, replicable examples out there in the world. Um, what, in your opinion, is one of the most realistic solutions um, the lowest hanging fruit that that we can maybe learn from. I mean, you know, and this ties into what we were talking about earlier in the event that I'm having this week in, in New York. That, you know, a lot of the low hanging fruit is on post harvest losses and preventing retail and consumer food waste. Got I it. think there's you know a yeah. lot that's easy and and that can be done very quickly without a lot of regulation if, 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 you know, consumers and retailers and farmers themselves all sort of took these things on. You know, there are things that require some more infrastructure. One of the things that bothers me is that, you know, farmers and in, in, we, we, when we talk about food waste, we're always thinking about like, gosh, you know, I have too much takeout in the back of my refrigerator. I bought too many fancy vegetables at the farmer's market. But the real problem is for farmers in the developing world who lack the, the infrastructure to preserve their crops better. And so simple solutions, you know, that they can undertake, like cutting the tops off things like sweet potatoes before they store them can help, you know, make those crops last longer. If they had bigger things like better roads, they can get crops quicker to market. You know, there are just a lot of things that could really help small-scale farmers that aren't being done. Yeah, and I feel like food waste is one of those topics that everyone gets, you know, you can just think in your head, Absolutely. OK, there's there's people starving and yet I'm throwing away these leftovers. Like, it's just it's one of those things that, you know, public can really grasp, I hope. 
Um, Absolutely. And it's bipartisan, right? Like, right. this gets across both aisles. Like, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican or somebody in between, you can still understand that, like, you're wasting money when you waste food. Yeah, yeah. It is. Um, so, okay, also, I'm, I'm curious today, um, is... Is, are these solutions sort of like a moving target sometimes, given given changes, rollbacks and policies or regulations, both in the current U.S. administration and others around the world, but also given, I don't know, new changing climate conditions? I mean, absolutely. Like, I think that, I mean, what we're learning from all of this is that I think agriculture sort of has to stand on its own. It has to be sort of beyond politics because of things like climate change or, you know, the tsunami that hit Asia this week. Mm -hmm. We need more effective resilient strategies that don't depend on who's in office or or what's coming down the pike, you know, in terms of of the global economy. We need to build resilient strategies into our food system. And and what, you know, I, I love that food is political, especially in the U.S., and we all have, you know, the power to vote with our forks. But again, food should really be beyond politics so that we can make a food system that that is viable for everyone. Yeah. So, OK, so been, since you've been working, um, you know, since your days as uh, sorry, what is it called <laughs> in the Peace Corps? It was the world. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> in the Peace Corps and then on to Food Tank. Um, you've had a long career um, working towards a more sustainable food system. So I'm curious what changes you may have seen in the last, uh, I don't know, in, in the course of your career, but also maybe more recently. I mean, I think the biggest change for me sort of personally is that if you had asked me 15 years ago when I sort of first started doing this work, you know, professionally, if I would be, you know, open to the idea that the private sector and businesses, you know, small or large could be a big part of the solution. I would have said, you know, F you. I don't think companies need to be involved. Uh-huh. I don't need I don't want to deal with corporations. That's all BS, et cetera. Yeah. And I've really changed my mind about how I view, you know, I'm, I'm excited about some of the smaller and medium-sized com- uh, companies in both, you know, the global south and the global north. And I've also realized that, you know, we have to engage with the private sector when it's big, too. And, yeah. And, because they're involved in this and they ha- they do have so much power. And if we ignore them or act like they're all evil, you know, that's yeah. not going to get us anywhere. So I really changed sort of my mind on how things happen. I mean, I can't, you know, it, it's been a slower evolution probably than it should have been. But I, I feel, you know, that it's something that I've learned over the last few years. And I'm still, you know, sustainable agriculture is my background and where I come from and, you know, how I, I want to view the world. But I, I do think we need to be listening to all sides and involve them in the dialogue. And, and then I'm sorry I'm talking so much, but really realize that these issues are not black and white, that they're very gray and we need to start listening to one another. Well, for I mean, I think this book is a great example of that. You're putting out this wonderful guide and informational sort of resource for everybody. But um, it sounds like it's the, a collaboration of many people, including, you know, nonprofits like the Brilla Foundation, the Brilla Center, um, the Rockefellers. Like, just looking at the acknowledgments on the first page of the acknowledgments, <laughs> yeah. it's like yeah. there's Organic Valley, there's the Rockefeller Foundation, there's Grace Communications Foundation, Fair Trade USA, and then there's Cliff Bar and, like, Blue Apron and Nyman Ranch and Naked Juice. It's a whole, like, smorgasbord. 
board, board <laughs> sorry, of people and corporations. Or a cornucopia, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, I, smorgas, the word smorgasbord is lost on me because of smorgasbergs. Anyway, um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, so, you know, it's really exciting what you guys are able to do, I guess, when working together. And um, I guess the, the event coming up this week in New York City will be uh, really exciting and uh, I can't wait to, to check it out and and um seems like that's also you know testament to that so so congrats and um oh, thank you yeah thank you. we're so lucky you know we're we're food tank is five years old this year and we've really been able to sort of you know remain you know scrappy and small but mm-hmm. also grow a little and, and have a little bit more influence yeah and have a little bit of fun too you know Absolutely. what's not fun with that um, so it looks like that's about all the time we have for today, but I really hope everyone checks out this book, Nourish Plan. I mean, even for just like the collection of interviews that are, that are in here and, and the really practical, uh, information that anyone can take away, um, whether or not you're just an average person who wants to eat, um, more sustainably or, or you're looking to, Hey, start a project of your own. So thank you so much, Danielle, for this great book. Oh, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. And uh, thanks, everyone, at Heritage. And that's about all the time we have for today. But we'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. That I never, 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 never had no-